feel super legit with one of these, even though I probably don't look legit because I'm fiddling with it. Um, it's really fun being able to speak to you guys and actually have people recognize me. That's pretty cool. Um, it's, been, it's been a really great year that Claire and I have been in the States, and I, I'm really enjoying actually knowing the church that I'm a part of, so that's cool. Um, as, as, as we were worshiping, I just, um, I, I can't remember what song it was, but it was talking about, uh, saying something about God, God of nations. Something, something about God. I think, I think it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, um, it said something along the lines of God of nations, talking about God, um, God as God over the nations. And I just, I love that, um, that idea, and I love that terminology. In, in YWAM, where Claire and I work, it's kind of like one of these big jargon things. Like, we always talk about the nations, and some of those people are like, which nations? Um, but the, the idea of God as God of the whole world, I think sometimes it's really easy to get a bit uh, ethnocentric. And when we think about God, we think that, you know, we think God is kind of like us. Uh, or, or we're like God, um, and, and you know, we, we are, and he is to an extent, um, but sometimes because of the thinking that way, we forget that he's also God of everyone else as well, and God of people who are really super different from us, um, you know, in other places where life is super different, and I think, yeah, I just wanted to start by highlighting that, you know, God is God of everywhere, and, and actually if we, if we remember that when we worship him, and we remember, you know, all these things that we are celebrating this morning by taking communion and, and what God has done and thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus. If we remember that actually that doesn't just apply to us uh, here or even, you know, in the rest of America or in the rest of the Western world, but, but the world, the world, the whole world, um, I think it just, it makes God a whole lot greater when I remember that. So I just wanted to, I guess, focus on that before we get started. Hi. Hi. <coughs> um, hi. Cool. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put my phone timer on so that I don't get carried away because I care about you guys. Cool. Um, so I'm talking about missions today, which is exciting. It's at least that exciting. Um, so I guess uh, when I was waiting on God for for what I should share and how I, what, what what I should say, um, I felt like. I should share a little bit about my experience in missions, and then I want to go on and talk more about uh, the biblical basis for missions. Okay, so it's going to be a little bit, little bit testimony and a little bit teaching. So just hold on to your hats because it's going to be cool. <laughs> just, just talking myself up there. Cool. So I come from New Zealand. Has anyone heard of New Zealand? Had, had anyone actually heard of New Zealand before the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Claire, Claire insists that she had heard of New Zealand before Lord of the Rings, but she didn't really know anything about it. Um, but of course, you all know New Zealand is the uh, incredibly powerful, influential, you know, <laughs> leaders of the free world, and <laughs> etc. Um, you guys know the board game Risk? Have, did you ever notice that New Zealand's not on the risk map? <laughs> it just gets to Australia and then just drops off, <laughs> which is a source of strife for me. And then in the more, like, in the, there's like updated versions of risk, and there's a futuristic risk that includes the moon and still doesn't have New Zealand on it. <laughs> so that's how significant New Zealand is. 
That's <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, so I, I was actually born in England, which, so I'm kind of... Ben, ben uh, recognizes me as half English, so, I, so when he invites me to games night, he's like, now there's one and a half Englishman here. <laughs> even though I feel like I'm kind of a big guy, so even if half of me was English, that's kind of almost a normal person. <laughs> almost. Anyway, so I was born in England, but I grew up in New Zealand because my family moved there when I was six years old. Um, and so I held a British passport. I am legitimately British, but I'm kind of more New Zealand than anything. That's where I grew up. Um, and a couple years after we moved to New Zealand, I was at church, and we had a little, you know, kids' Sunday school church thing, things that kids go to while grown-ups do real church. Um, <laughs> just kidding. But I remember, so this one time that I was in Sunday school, and uh, one of the elders of our church came into our Sunday school, and I don't really remember what he was doing, but I remember that he prayed for me, and he got a prophetic word for me, um, and basically he said he got this picture of a cupboard, um, which was me, because I look like a cupboard. Um, so, so he got a picture of a cupboard, and the cupboard was taking the gospel overseas. Um, I don't know if it was a floating cupboard. Uh, and then he got a second picture, and so basically, yeah, and he got a second picture of a kind of a, a, a tumble down, kind of falling apart cupboard. This is like a really, you know, like cool word. Everyone wants to be likened to a cupboard. Um, anyway, his, his interpretation was he was saying he feels like God is calling me to missions, um, and that, uh, that I have a choice, and that if I, if I obey and I walk in that, then I'm going to be this strong, sturdy cupboard. Um, and if I, if I don't walk in that, then I'm going to be this tumble, fall apart, rubbish cupboard. So I kind of got strong-armed into missions. Um, but no, it was, it was more of a positive thing. I feel like I just told it in a, in a bad way. But kind of this whole idea of that, that if I want to walk in the fullness of who God is calling me to be, then that's missions. And if I, if I don't follow through that, then I'm never going to quite be what I could be or what God wants me to be. I was about eight years old at that time. Um, so, you know, so the next year I went into missions and I, no. Um, so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't go into missions at that time. A few years later, uh, we had this African missionary, I think he was probably from Mozambique, uh, I can't really remember, come to our church. Um, and so I was about 13. And the way my dad tells the story, I was being a complete, like, little pest and like just being really irritating throughout the whole message, like not listening to what the guy was saying and just kind of like distracting everybody and, and, and being a little brat. Um, and then at the end, this missionary guy says, basically, God is calling, God calls us to, to missions, right? Uh, and there are people in the church who God is calling to missions. And so if you feel like God is speaking to you, then come up and like make this public response. And, and I went up. So all I remember is that I felt, I felt like I should respond, and I went up, but my dad said I wasn't listening for the whole time. And then I, and then I looked like I was a really good Christian. Um, and so kind of that, that cemented for me that this is what God was calling me to. Um, I was about 13 when that happened, and that was kind of also the year where I was getting into youth group and really uh, deciding to follow God and realizing that uh, you know, that I could have my own personal relationship with him, um, not just kind of go to church because my parents go to church. Uh, so that was a good, 
good year, but the next few years of, of my teens, it was kind of like, uh, I didn't really know what it meant to be a, a Christian. I felt like when I was 13, I had this kind of, I was like building this momentum of, of knowing God and falling in love with God. And then it kind of, within a year, kind of felt like it got stuck. And then it wasn't quite as, it didn't feel like it was happening after that. It felt like a little jammed. And so I was still a Christian and I still, you know, felt like God was calling to missions and, and all this, but I felt like my, my walk with God was never kind of as, as, it didn't go where I thought it was going and didn't get as good as I thought it was going to get uh, for a few years. Um, I want to take a break, actually. Not take a break. Yeah, can we take a break? <laughs> um, sorry, I want to pause and just um, define what I, what I mean when I say missions. That's just to keep you interested. <laughs> Take a little break. Um, so, missions is, is basically Christianity. Like, I'm, I, I've kind of put it out there. I feel like they're, they're kind of inseparable in terms of what God calls us as Christians to do, or, or rather, not so much to do, what he calls us into, or what he has called us into, right? Because uh, Christianity is about knowing God, and it's about being in relationship with God, right? And it's about uh, becoming closer to Him, and it's about learning to hear Him and learning to obey Him and being transformed into His image. Um, so missions is, is the invitational part of that process, right? So I know that depending on where you're from and what your background is, the word missions can have kind of different connotations, and, um, you know, some people associate it with, you know, um, like colonization and, like, subjugation and... That kind of thing. That's not the kind of missions that we do, just to clarify. Um, but it's about inviting people into God's promises, right, in a nutshell. Um, we're, we're taking communion this morning, and we're talking about how, you know, how Jesus has died for us and made a way for us to know him. Um, and we're, we're worshiping for him for how great he is and that he has made a way for us to know him and be a part of that and have, have fullness of life. Right, and so missions is inviting people into that. Um, you know, where, where whatever context that, that is in. And so, you know, we can talk about local missions and we can talk about workplace missions and, you know, uh, many of you. And, and, and Ryan is a great example of, you know, taking the kingdom into his workplace and inviting people into that. Um, so when I say missions, and when I'm talking about that now, I'm talking about international missions and like going to a different country, but it's, it's all part of the same package. It's It's... It's inviting people into the kingdom of God, right? It's not going out and saying, you know, I'm better than you, therefore you should be like me. And it's not saying that my culture is right and your culture is wrong and you should change. It's saying, this is what God has done. This is what he's inviting you into, you know? Right? Cool. Beans. Okay. So I'm 13, 14, 15, 16, and I feel like God has called me to be a missionary. And so, which is helpful because I have no idea what I actually want to do with my life. So I'm like, well, great. I don't have any contrasting ambitions. Um, um, so I'm like, okay, missions. What is missions? Well, obviously it's Africa. Um, obviously it means, you know, living in a mud hut in a village in, in you know, deepest, darkest Africa. Also, New Zealand is um, like an island. Well, it's several islands, and it's quite far away from everywhere. And the closest place that it's to is Australia, which is, you know, 
a fairly similar culture. So to get somewhere that's like really foreign from New Zealand takes quite a bit of effort, right? Whereas in, you know, in the States, you guys obviously have a border with Canada. And so, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, you know, and the other border with Mexico. And so there's a kind of a closer foreignness. Whereas in New Zealand, like foreign is far away, like, you know. So that's far away in my mind. And I'm thinking about missions. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I should learn some survival skills to, you know, to survive as a missionary, you know, because of all the cannibals and that kind of thing. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I'm going to join the army and like learn, you know, learn how to rough it, learn how to learn survival skills. And then once I've kind of done that for a few years, then I'll be prepared to be a missionary. I also at this point thought that there were maybe three or four missionaries in the world at the time. I didn't have any concept of what God was already doing in missions. I thought it was kind of something that nobody else was doing. And so, and this is a, a kind of a terrifying insight into the way that I think of myself. Uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to go into missions and, and you know, I'm going to be, you know, people are going to want to put, put up statues and stuff in my, in my honor because this, this, this great man, like, you know, giving of myself and saving the world and there's going to be statues and I mean, there's only two or three other missionaries, so who is there to compete with? Like, so this was, this was my impression of missions. And if anybody has a very similar impression of missions, I would love to talk to you. <laughs> Don't feel bad, because you're not the only one, obviously. Okay, um, so then after I graduated high school, um, I was like, well, what am I going to do? And then my sister's friend comes back from a missions trip and is like, have you heard of YWAM? And I thought that YWAM... I don't know why, I apparently struggle with acronyms, but I thought YWAM was the female version of the YMCA. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of YWAM. Um, yeah, that's not true. Um, so she told me about what YWAM was and about a, a training course that she'd just done called the Discipleship Training Course. She'd been away for six months. Three months of that had been uh, an overseas missions trip. And I was like, wow. Perfect. That'll teach me how to be a missionary. Um, and then I went, and it taught me how to be a Christian, which was also <laughs> pretty instrumental in my career. So um, the year after I graduated high school, I went to do this school in Perth, Australia, um, which is probably a fairly inconsequential city that you may or may not have heard of. It's the capital of Western Australia. It's the most isolated capital city in the world. There you go. <laughs> Fun fact, trivia night. Keep that in your back pocket. Um, so I went from Perth, uh, and for our outreach, we spent three months in West Africa. So we went to Ghana, the Ivory Coast, and Liberia, um, which was slightly different from life in New Zealand. Marginal. Um, it was very different. Especially, well, no, especially all of them. Ghana is uh, English. English and, and like native languages spoken, uh, so it was settled by the English, or it was invaded by the English. Um, the Ivory Coast is French speaking, uh, and then Liberia is actually, I don't know if you guys know about Liberia, it's, it's got strong ties with the USA. Uh, it was actually uh, founded as a settlement for freed slaves. It was kind of a bit of an optimistic, um, like slaves were taken away from Africa, and then a little while later, we realized that was a bad thing and then kind of optimistically just 
set them back. And here you go, Liberia, which didn't work so well, unfortunately. Um, so these are very poor nations. Um, typically, in a lot of, uh, in a lot, especially the northern part of Africa, the further north you go, uh, the more Islamic it is. The further south you go, the more Christian it is. So kind of down on the south coast of West Africa, uh, where a lot of the main cities are, it's Christian, and then like, the further north you go in any of these countries, it becomes more and more Islamic. Um, so I went there and I encountered a different, a really different culture for the first time in my life and a really different way of life for the first time in my life, and I encountered a, a, a whole new level of poverty. Um, my, my family was, was fairly tight growing up. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, and then I realized that actually, you know, there's poverty and then there's poverty. Um, and my eyes are just being open to this whole new world. Um, Liberia, when I went a few years before, had just kind of finished a civil war. Um, so it, it had previously been fairly established in terms of uh, infrastructure. Um, so this house we're staying in, for instance, it had flushing toilets, but they weren't plumbed in because all the plumbing had either been destroyed uh, by explosives or, or scavenged for other purposes um, or whatever. So we had. So in our bathroom, we had this, you know, this nice toilet that you could sit on, which is, you know, which is a luxury in missions. You get to sit down on the toilet. Um, and then downstairs and like out the garden into the back of the property was a well. And so every morning, we'd have to go and fill buckets with water. And then there was this one big master bucket in the bathroom that we would fill, and that would take like, I don't know, 10, buckets of water to fill that. So then when you use the toilet, you can, you can flush it with the bucket. Um, uh, we visited schools where uh, there were kids who were older than I was that were still doing high school because their education had been interrupted during the Civil War. And so, you know, uh, five years they weren't going to school. And so then they go back in and kind of pick it up and carry on later on. Uh, some of those same schools just machine gun spray across the side. One of them, I remember, had a big RPG hole in it that had been patched up. Uh, a lot of the roads uh, had these lines in them, and I asked what they were, and they were saying that during the Civil War, uh, tires, car tires, were too expensive, so people just drove on their rims. Um, so there's all these little, like, narrow channels in all the roads. And so I, guess I, I saw a, a whole new world, or a part of a whole new world, and then I realized that, you know, what I'm seeing is not the rest of the world, what I'm seeing is a part of all of the world that I don't know and I haven't understood. And I kind of got this realization that the world was a heck of a lot bigger and a heck of a lot more different than, than I had realized or ever really thought about. And so I kind of got this perspective for um, the need for missions. Um, what's really interesting, I remember when I first went, um, I was working at a little hardware store to, to earn some money to go. Um, and I was telling my coworkers that I am going to do this missions trip, and somebody was like, what, "Like, why do you do missions? Because doesn't you know? Hasn't everyone already heard about Jesus? Like, kind of like, are you just going to like nag at them until they start believing?" And I was like, "I guess so." Like, I didn't know at the time. Uh, I didn't know at the time that actually, it, so it's actually it's it's convenient. It's roughly divided into thirds. It's about a third of the world. Um, that is like, like us here, may not all be Christian, but at least has easy access to knowing about Jesus if they want to, right? Like all of your coworkers, if they wanted to know who Jesus was, they could just say, hey, can you tell me more about Jesus? And it's, it's there and it's available and it's lawful and all of this. 
Sorry, that's the second third. The first third is actually Christian. About one third of the world is actually Christian. Give or take. Um, yeah, Christian or with really easy access. Another third of the world could find it if they, if they went looking for it. But there's one third of the world that, that, that for the most part has never heard the name of Jesus. We're talking population here, not, not landmass. One third of the population of the world may have never heard the name of Jesus. And if they've heard the name of Jesus, it's because they've heard about Christmas but it's, they don't know who he is, and there's no access to Bibles, there's no access to teaching, there's no access to churches, this kind of thing. That's, that's two billion people plus in the world who, who are absolutely unreached. Right? So I didn't know this when I first went into missions, but I just want to assure you guys that there are people out there who, who, who are there waiting to be reached. Well, they might not be waiting to be reached because they don't know, but you know. But that God is waiting for us to share with, which is, which is much bigger than I ir- originally thought. Okay, so I came back from West Africa, and I was like, okay, I feel like God is calling me to stay in missions and, and be in missions for the long term. Um, but I, I had a, an incomplete understanding of, of missions at that time. Now, obviously, I know everything. No, I still have an incomplete understanding of missions. But at that time, I kind of walked... I, I saw a lot of humanitarian efforts in the countries that I was in, and I saw them not, not working, or not working as well as it would be hoped, you know? Um, and, and my conclusion was, it's sad that people are you know, starving and dying in these conditions, but the most important thing is that they get saved, and then they can suffer for the rest of their, you know, 60 years or 40 years or whatever the life expectancy is, which is a lot less than here, you know, which is sad, but then when they die, they'll be with Jesus. Uh, and that's, you know, that ultimately is the most important thing, was my way of thinking. And, um, and, to, be, and to be fair, I think there is logic in that, you know, but it's, it's certainly not the full extent of what God wants. Um, and as I've been in missions and continued in missions uh, and continued to learn God's heart for the world, um, I've learned a lot about, um, like I think about the Lord's Prayer, right? And, and Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. Um, and started grasping that God doesn't want us to die and go to heaven. He wants to bring his kingdom on the earth, Right? Um, and so missions is about, is about getting people into, the, you know, into salvation uh, in faith in Jesus, but it's about more than that. It's about bringing the fullness of life that God wants for all of us to everyone, right? So there's these, these two, um, I guess, balancing aspects of, of missions, which is one, uh, you know, salvation, but two, fullness of life on earth um, because God cares about all of, all of man, all of the man, not just his spirit. Um, but it took me a while to be convinced of this. Um, do you guys, are you guys familiar with the term the Great Commission? The, if I say the Great Commission, it's, it's basically the last instructions Jesus gave to his disciples before he scat out of there. Um, and so there's kind of, there's two main uh, recordings. It actually appears in all of the Gospels, but it's a little bit more uh, quotable in Marth and Mark, Moth. The Gospel of Marth. <laughs> Mark, Mark. <laughs> and Matthew. Thanks. I've been practicing my R's since I've been here. My R's. 
Okay, so Mark 16:15 says um, something along the lines of, uh, <laughs> go therefore and preach the gospel to every living thing. And Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20 says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Um, and so I was like, well, Matthew, you kind of got that wrong, didn't you? I, I, underst- I, I felt like I could grasp Mark. Go and preach the gospel. That's succinct. That's clear. Matthew, I feel like you kind of missed the point, mate. Um, and then eventually... Jesus started to show me that it's not either or, you know, which is funny because they're both in the Bible. So I feel like I should have understood that they were both true. But just in case you're a little bit slow on the uptake like I was, they're both true. And they're both the Great Commission and they're both our task as Christians to preach the gospel, but then to teach, teach the world to obey everything that he has commanded us, right? And that's not just um, moral truths, you know, that's the fullness of life, that's the kingdom of God, right? Cool. So after I've been in missions for a couple of years, actually when I first started in missions, God started telling me to to read the Bible regularly. Um, And it took me about two years to actually start obeying him in that, which is not not the greatest example to set. So don't do that. Um, But I started reading the Bible a lot more earnestly. um, And I started to see... The, the bigger picture of missions and what God was doing in the Bible. And I started to see actually where I fit in with the Bible. And it became, you know, that the Bible is not just this thing that happened and is interesting and gives us good pointers, but actually it, uh, the, the, the narrative arc of the Bible starts over here and finishes over here, and actually I'm still in the middle of that. And so there's a part for me to play. And instead of, you know, the patriarchs and Abraham and, and Paul and all of these guys being... Um, separate from me, actually, I'm standing on their shoulders and I'm continuing in what they did, right? And we're, and we're still looking forward to the same things that they looked forward to. So we are in the middle of that. So I, I guess I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Bible and missions in the Bible and, and the biblical basis for missions. And so uh, a few months ago, I did a, a Bible overview that uh, Quite a lot of people were there for. So I'm going to touch on some of that stuff again. So I'm sorry if it feels repetitive. Hopefully it doesn't. Um, but if it does, then that's why. I'm going to take a drink now. <laughs> that's good stuff. Great. Okay. So when we talk, when I when I think about the Bible, I think about uh, I think it's. It's an ongoing thing. It's not a dead thing. It's not a book of rules. It's, it's mostly narrative, right? Most of the way the Bible is written is stories of things that happened to people. Um, and so if you look at the overarching narrative of the Bible, there's a setting, there's a problem. This is how I was taught in, in, in primary school. Like, this is what a narrative is. There's a setting, there's a problem, and then there's a solution, right? And that's how a story works. And if you don't have all of those things, then you have a terrible story. So if we look at that, um, that model with the Bible, we have the setting of the scene is creation, right? And as uh, God makes the world, and then the Garden of Eden, and then he makes Adam and Eve. And for a little while, everything is hunky-dory. Um, and Adam and Eve are close with God and obedient to God and everything. Great. And then the fall. Are you, are you familiar with that terminology? 
uh, we, you know, humankind sins, Adam and Eve sin, and they set, you know, they set the scene for, for all of us to continue in that sin, which is bad. Um, and, it, and it brings about uh, a curse on the earth, the Bible talks about, and, and a, a separation from God. You know, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, and they cannot be in the presence of God after that. Uh, and, then, and then we have all of this, and then actually the Bible kind of cheats because it tells us the end as well. Um, and that's the book of Revelation talks about when Jesus finally comes back. And that's not the end, the end, the end, but that's the end of the story of the earth. Um, and then after that, there's the story of, you know, us being with Jesus for all eternity, which, which probably be a good story. Um, but we're not there yet. Um, so, but instead of, instead of us starting after the Bible ends, we, we, we fit in in the middle, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool beans. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to kind of go through a little bit more in detail of, of the story and how it all works and what God has been doing through that. Okay, so... Adam and Eve setting the scene, creation, all good. Then the fall happens, and the serpent comes and, and convinces Adam and Eve that what God wants is not best for them, etc., etc. They eat the apple or whatever fruit it was, because it doesn't say apple. They eat the fig. Let's, let's say fig. Um, uh, and then God comes down, and he's like, what happened? And they're like, well, um, you know, she made me eat it, and, and he, and then the serpent. And so God comes... And he says, this is in uh, Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent um, that through the woman, uh, a seed is coming. And Satan will strike his heel, and he will crush Satan's head. Right? And this is, the, this is where, as far as I'm aware, this is the first um, prophecy of Jesus. Right? Immediately after the fall has happened, God is like, I'm going to send my son, and you're going to hurt him, but he's going to crush you. Which I love. <laughs> so good. And it, but he says it's going to be the seed of the woman. Right? So it's not just that God is going to come in you know, with a baseball bat from outside and beat the snot out of Satan. He's saying that I am going to bring redemption through the thing that you just tried to ruin. Right? through mankind. So from this point on, God, is, God has said, I'm going to bring my son into the world. You know, not in those words. He said, I'm going to bring the seed of woman is going to, who is going to crush the head of Satan. He is coming into the world. And so for the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the Old Testament, everything that is happening is, is actually setting up for Jesus to arrive uh, and, and to, to fulfill this prophecy of, of redeeming what the fall undid. So, so when we read the Old Testament, it's all in, in this part of the narrative where there is, this is all relevant to that underlying story thread that Jesus is coming back and that God is preparing a way for the seed of woman to come into the world. Um, in Galatians 4 verse 4, it, it, it says something along the lines of Jesus came in the fullness of time which means at the right time. You know, when the time was right, Jesus came. So then all of, all of what's happening here is waiting for the time to be right. Okay, so after, after that, we go through a few characters in Genesis. We talk about people like Noah. What happened with Noah, right? The world 
got evil, and God was like, this is no good. I'm going to have to start again, because essentially, he says that every thought of every man, woman, and child all the time was evil. So that's pretty bad. Like, on a scale of one to bad, that's pretty bad. Um, and so how is God going to bring his seed through the world if it's all totally evil all the time, right? So I, so I think, so obviously God wants mankind to continue, but it's not just because he likes man, it's also that he's got a purpose to redeem mankind, and, and so he chooses Noah's family, he, he wipes the slate clean, uh, and he starts again with Noah's family. And then the world kind of repopulates, and then God chooses Abraham, or Abram, Right? Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't just choose Abraham because he's like, you're better than every other person, I love you more. He does it because he has a purpose. And he's like, I want to make you into a nation. And actually through this nation, this is what he says. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And if you want to sound cool, you can call it the Abrahamic covenant. He says, oh, I didn't even write it down. Here it is in my Bible. It's up there. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and, show you, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's, God's intent when he chose Abram, or Abraham, I'll just call him because it's easier, um, his intent was not just to bless him and not just to choose him and say, you're a good guy, I like you. His intent was, I want to bless the world, so I'm going to choose somebody to be a conduit for that blessing, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Right? And, so, and, and, and the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing is, is through Christ, where he invites us back into relationship with God through Christ. And so God chooses a man who will produce a family, who will produce a nation that the ultimate blessing can come through, which is Jesus, obviously, and Jesus came through the Jewish nation. So God chooses the Jews, but he doesn't choose them because he likes them and he doesn't like everybody else. He chooses them because he wants the whole world to be blessed. And so this is, this is where I feel like the whole idea of missions goes back to. God wants the entire earth to be blessed, and the ultimate blessing is to be in relationship with God, right? Yeah. It's not better to be wealthy and, and not know who God is. It's, it's, it's pretty great to be both. <laughs> not bad. Um, so, but this is, you know, this is the seed of missions is all the way back in Genesis uh, 3, um, but this is where we start to see it taking shape. God is like, I'm, I've chosen a people to reach the rest of the world, which is quite, you know, a significant mirror image of, of the church's role now. Yeah. Okay, so God has chosen the Jews to be the conduit through which he'll bring the blessing of Jesus. Um, but even throughout the Old Testament, we follow the story of the Jews, um, but God is actually interested in the whole world. And so he's actually reaching people outside of the Jewish nation throughout the Old Testament. Um, and they're not kind of insignificant little asides. They're actually an indication of God's desire for the whole world. So if you look, even if the, uh, the lifetime of Abraham, God is moving him towards his destiny and then he crosses paths with this uh, guy called Melchizedek, and, and actually Melchizedek knows God, which is interesting because he's not a Jew and he's not of Abraham's family, um, and Abraham even pays him tribute, so he's like this legitimate guy who God is working, working in and with 
aside from his plan with the Jews. Um, and there's a bunch of other examples throughout the Old Testament of that. Um, Israel goes into the belly of Egypt um, uh, you know, with Joseph. They follow Joseph in. Uh, they become a nation in Egypt, right? Before they were a family. But by the time we pick up in, in Exodus, they are a nation. On, and there's lots of them. And it's kind of freaking the Egyptians out how many there are. Because um, they like to have kids. Um, but what God is doing is he's preparing a nation, right? And, um, and when he brings them out of Egypt, he establishes them as a nation and he shows them how he wants them to live, right? So this is, kind of, this is the first picture of, uh, of the fullness of life that God wants for everyone in the world, right? So when you read um, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, they're books of law, and often they can feel really dry when we read them, but what they're doing is they're establishing a nation, and they're telling that nation what to be like. And so they're establishing this, um, and, you know, not so in a, in a moral, spiritual way. We've got the Ten Commandments, we've got the spiritual law, but then we've also got the, the civil law, um, how, you, how your court system should work, you know, all these things. He's establishing a, a righteous nation and, and an example of the way that he wants people to be. And so he shows them how to be a godly nation through the law. Um, and then they are a light to the other Gentile nations around them. And in fact, um, there's one point where God is really kind of losing patience with the Israelites. Um, and he's like, you know what, I'm just going to wipe you guys out and start again. And Moses is like, don't do that, because all the other nations around will look and say, wow, God couldn't even save his own people. And, and God cares so much about what the other nations think about him that he changes his mind. And I think that's just an illustration of the fact that God is not preoccupied with the Jews and ignoring everybody else. He's using the Jews to fulfill his purposes for the entire world. Um, as we go through Exodus, Jethro, um, Moses' father-in-law, knows God. So he's not a Jew. He's, he's a Midianite, which as you go through the Old Testament, the Jews hate Midianites. But Jethro, the Midianite, knows God and is a priest of God that he just bumps into and crosses paths with. Um, Balaam, if you know the story where um, Balaam actually gets hired to curse the people of Israel, um, but he's praying to God, and God is like, sorry, man, I'm not going to curse those guys. You're not going to get any money for that. And then Balaam kind of goes off the rails and, and gets, you know, gets his. Um, but the fact is that he knew God, and God was working through him, and he wasn't a Jew. You know, he was part of the surrounding nations that God was reaching out to, even as we read the story of the, of the Jewish nation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool beans. Yeah, if, and if you go through, um, you know, Caleb, the guy who, uh, one of the good spies who came back with a good report, his dad was a, um, was a foreigner who was kind of grafted in to Israel. Basically, the law prov made a provision that if, you, if a foreigner wanted to live as part of the Israelite nation and followed the laws, then they, they, they would be. They get adopted into this family of God. So, so even though for a lot of history, the Jews were uh, quite an exclusive people, especially in Jesus's time, there was a lot of, of we are the chosen people and everyone else, you know, stinking foreigners, gross, 
kind of mentality. What God had established and what, what God had put in the law was to make, to open up availability to God for the foreigners through the Jewish nation. There's even a, a, a courtyard in the temple um, which, so, so it's when Jesus threw the moneylenders, etc., out of the temple, the courtyard that they were in uh, was the courtyard that foreigners could go into to watch the Jews make sacrifices. And they could observe the, the, the interaction between God and his people. And, and they, could, they, could, they couldn't be a part of it unless they bought into it, but they could see it. It wasn't, it wasn't a separated thing. So one of the reasons God was so ups- uh, Jesus was so upset about them being in the temple is not just that they were doing ungodly things in the temple, but it's that they were stopping the foreigners being able to come in and see what was going on. Um, so, so God has always been, through the law and through the Old Testament, through the Jewish nation, trying to make himself available to people outside of the Jews, uh, even though the Jews often didn't, didn't cooperate very well with that. God was always concerned about the foreigners. Uh, even, even some of uh, Jesus' ancestors, Rahab and Ruth, two of, uh, there's, there's five women uh, listed in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, there were probably more women involved. <laughs> Just guessing. Um, but several of them are foreigners, including Rahab and Ruth, and they get mentioned in his genealogy, and they are foreigners. They are non-Jews. Um, but by the time Jesus did come, and by the time fullness of time happened and he came, even though God had made himself available through the Jews to the world, uh, there are not many people in terms of proportionally, not, not a great percentage of the world knew God, even though he'd made himself available. Um, so if you look at that as, as the overarching um, method of missions, it's, it's quite a, it's a poor method, right? because it didn't, it didn't achieve what it wanted to do. God wanted all nations to be blessed, and a few nations had been blessed, and Israel had been blessed, and many people had come into knowing God through Israel, but still, you know, the majority of the world didn't know him. But that wasn't the entirety of God's plan for missions. I'm just realizing I'm taking way too long, and I'm going to have to, like, move way quicker than I meant to through the rest, but bear with me. Okay? So... What I'm, what I'm basically trying to illustrate is that the world will never be reached by staying in one place, you know? A lot of, and a lot of you guys, I'm guessing, and tell me if I'm wrong in making assumptions, but I'm guessing a lot of you come from immigrant families. You know, whether it was you know, one or two generations ago or, or whatever. That was kind of meant to be a joke. <laughs> I'm, I'm an immigrant, so, you know. We're tight. But, but what I'm saying is, you know, there, so, there, so then you and your families, um, you know, some of you may have known God uh, before you came to America, but many of you uh, probably found God, and you and your family found God after coming to America, right? So then there is this, uh, especially in the, uh, in the, what do you call it? Uh, global, globalism of today. There's a lot of moving back and forth, and there is a lot more opportunity for the foreigner to come and find out than there used to be. But there's still two billion people, and most of whom are the people who are not going to be jumping on a Boeing and scooting across the pond, you know, the people in poverty. There are two billion out there who, who aren't going to come and find out. So basically what I'm saying is there need to be people who go to them. And so God's 
um, plan for missions has always been that the whole world had, would be reached, but by the time Jesus came, only a little bit had been reached, right? But what I'm trying to set up for you is that when Jesus talks about the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, that's not a new idea that he just came up with as he was about to leave. You know, he's like about to head up to heaven. He's like, oh, wait, one more thing. You should share the gospel with everybody. Um, that's, been, that's been a central theme of God's work on the earth ever since God started working on the earth, right? He's always wanted everybody to know him. And I think, I think the Bible's clear that everybody won't know him, um, but he wants everyone to have an opportunity, and he wants the church, his chosen vessel, to go and take it to them, right? Yes? Awesome. So, as the church, it's our mission Incidentally, so when Jesus said this great commission, for a long time people were like, well, he was just talking to the 12 disciples. (laughs) This guy, this English guy called, so the English have done some good things as well in history, just by the way, I know that the English did some, had some bad ideas at the same time. But they did do some good things. This guy called, um, oh my goodness, what's his name? The guy who went to India. William William Carey. Joel Kim. Joel Kim, everybody. <laughs> William Carey is, uh, is kind of known as the father of modern missions, uh, one of the first Protestant to kind of catch on to the fact we should be doing missions, even though the Catholics were actually already on board with it. Um, he went to his leaders and was like, I've written a book on why I think that God is calling us to go and share the gospel with other nations. And his kind of head honcho dude said, sit down, young man. If God wants to reach the heathen, he'll do it himself. <laughs> and so this, is, this was actually for a long time the predominant attitude of the church, you know, that God has come, you know, God has come for us, and if he wants them, he'll, he'll do that himself. It's not my job. You know, he was just talking to the 12 disciples when he gave the Great Commission. But I, I hope you can all agree that that's ridiculous <laughs> and wrong. Okay, so the Great Commission is the concern of the whole church, which includes everybody in this room. Well, maybe not everybody, I'm not sure. But most people in this room. Okay, so then the question is, if we're all called to reaching the entire world, we're all called to international missions, how do we do that? Um, And the answer is not that we all need to go, even though that would be great. You know, you guys can come. But God, you know, God has a different call for different people, and he's doing more than one thing at a time. So even though his, his goal is that the whole world would know him, I don't think that the right response is to feel guilty that you're not going. Unless God has told you to go, and you didn't go. You know, if this is a Jonah-type situation, I encourage you to feel guilty. conviction coming over here. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but, it doesn't, but just because we're not all called to go doesn't mean it's not our collective responsibility. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at, right? As a church, if God has called you to stay, you know, and to, to be a light in your family here, to be a, l- a light in your industry here, then that's great, and that's spiritual, and, and by no means do I want to suggest that being a, a, a 
an international missionary is the most spiritual pursuit, because that's ridiculous. Um, but what I do want to suggest is that if you're not called to go, you don't then get the right to say, glad I don't have to worry about that. Glad that's Luke's problem. <laughs> so I guess the question I want to raise and that I want you guys to be able to ask God is what is your, what is your contribution? What is your role? So some of you might not know, you might still be wondering what is God calling me to? And some of you might have a fairly strong idea of it um, and you know that you're called to be here or to be somewhere, you know. Um, but then even with that, what is your contribution to international missions? And so the number one, and, and guys, I just want to make sure I don't sound like a hypocrite here. The number one thing that everybody can do is pray for missions. And, and I, I'm not great at that. I'm not a great prayer all the time. So I just want to put that out there and not be hypocritical. Um, but prayer changes things, right? Prayer actually changes nations. Uh, and it accomplishes things. It's not just a nice little exercise that we do. So if we want to see international, if we want to see the whole world reached with the gospel, then we better start praying for it. Because gonna, that's going to achieve a whole lot more than everybody leaving these pews and going out into the world. You know, it's something that I've often struggled to believe. Like, I remember being in Mexico and being like, okay, well, we could, we could pray for an hour, or I could just go and share the gospel for an hour. And it feels more practical to go and just share the gospel rather than praying for people to be saved. But actually, nothing will be accomplished without prayer. You know? And so being here and praying can achieve as much, if not more, than being out there and doing. You know? I think they need to work in partnership. I don't think if everyone stayed home and prayed that it would all work out. <laughs> but that's not to undermine the influence of prayer for the world. So pray. Like, I don't know, ask God if there's, a, if there's a, a prayer commitment that you could make, either for praying for a specific person or ministry or for a people group. There are, there are so many thousands, literally thousands of, of distinct cultural groups that have no access to the gospel. In India alone, there's like, like probably like 2,000 people groups that have no access to the gospel, may not have a single Christian in that people group uh, or don't have access to the Bible or whatever. There's so many people groups. You could adopt a people group, you could adopt a nation, you could adopt a missionary. You can ask God how you can be involved in praying for the Great Commission to be fulfilled. Um, you can send missionaries. You can be a missionary or you can send a missionary. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I kind of feel a little bit self-serving saying that, but it's true, so I'm just gonna say it anyway. And I want to affirm, I, like, until this year, I didn't know many people in this church very well. Even Ryan and Suki, like, I felt like, you know, I, felt, I love Ryan and Suki. But if I think back, I've spent, like, two weeks of my life with them, you know, so we've, we've done better this time. Um, <laughs> but, I'm, I, I, but I haven't had this incredibly deep connection, necessarily, with people in the ark. But yet, s many of you have, have supported us so well. As a, as a communal body and also as individuals, um, many people who have given and prayed for us um, and, and believed in us. And that's massive as somebody on the other end. Um, so yeah, pray about whether you, you have a part to play in supporting a missionary, whether that is you know, adopting 
adopting a missionary to pray for, which sounds a little bit, adopt me. <laughs> um, but yeah, a specific person to sew into to, to, you know, to get their updates. It could be us. I mean, yeah, let it be us. Let it be Mary and Brian. Um, are, are, they, are they here? Mary! Mary. <laughs> or somebody else that you know or have heard of. But, but you know, get, get involved in sending a missionary, whether it's through giving and financial support or whether it's through prayer and just encouraging, it makes a big difference and it enables people to stay out there. You know, a lot of missionaries go for a little while and then they come back because it's hard uh, and they feel isolated. And they f A lot of missionaries come back because they feel isolated and they feel like they don't, they don't connect, you know, they're disillusioned with how it wasn't super easy to bring the kingdom of God on earth. Um, but they also feel detached and disconnected from, from where they came from and from where they are. They feel like they have no, uh, no relationship that's keeping them there. So, so a relational connection with the missionary can help keep them on the field. And, and that's a really significant thing that anybody here can do. Pen pals. <laughs> yeah. And some of you might be called to go. Like, I, I, I don't know, I, God has not revealed to me the percentage of people he calls to missions. <laughs> um, but I feel like, I feel like 1% of the church doesn't, doesn't to me at least, from, from, from one perspective, doesn't feel like it would be an excessive number of missionaries to send. You know, one in every hundred, that's a totally arbitrary number. I'm not saying that, you know, that at least one other person in this church has to go, um, but you know, I feel like there could well be more missionaries. And, and Jesus says to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send more workers out into the harvest. And so some of you might be people that he's calling. And you might have heard that, you might not have heard about it, but, but as we kind of finish up, I encourage you, as we, I wanna finish with like an application of, of asking God how can we be involved in, in missions and in fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, and I want you to ask, God, do you want me to go? Do you want me to pray? Do you want me to send somebody? But, but how, can, how can I get my hands dirty and be involved with it? Right. I just, I, I'm, I've, I've gone a little bit long. Can I go for a few more minutes? Cool. I just wanted to finish with a few, um, few verses to consider in terms of, there are, there are a lot of people who are kind of missiologists who study the, the spread of missions. And it's, it's amazing because it's only really been in the last 400 years that the church has kind of started to do anything about it. Or, you know, immediately after Jesus, there was a, a, a flood of missionaries and Paul and his journeys and, and whatnot. Uh, as, as, the, as the church kind of became more about being Roman than about being the church, it kind of tailed off. Uh, for a long time, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Christ, and only a few hundred years since the church been actually seriously trying to get the world reached. But the fact is that, that where we are now, the number of Christians that there are, you know, because every time, as, as, the, as the body of Christ grows, there are, more, there are more, yeah, more people born, more people coming into the kingdom, more available workers, and fewer people left to be reached, right? So it's this exponential thing. The further the gospel goes, the quicker completion comes. And, and there are a lot of people who genuinely believe that this could be the last generation before the entire world is reached. We've got the, we've got the manpower, we've got the technology to actually get there, 
and we've got, the, we've got the money. There's so much, so much uh, resource within the, in the churches. You know, the church has the means to get there. So we could actually polish this thing off, you know? <laughs> we could do it in our generation. It's not this, like, going on forever type thing. Okay, so I wanna, I wanna just um, bring a, a couple of verses. Matthew 24, verse 14 um, says, basically, that the gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. So if we kind of, if we, if we break that down, I don't think that the end is gonna come until the gospel has been preached in all the nations, yeah. right? I think that's what the Bible is saying. I don't think that we can sit here hoping Jesus is gonna come back knowing that two billion people have never been reached with the gospel. Like, I don't think it's gonna happen until that's happened. Um, 2 Peter verse 3, uh, 11 to 12. This isn't like a mission-specific verse, but I, I feel like it, it ties in. It says that by the way that we live, you can hasten the day of the Lord. I think this one says look forward to, but other interpretations actually say hasten the day of the Lord, implying that actually you can, you can influence when Jesus is coming back by the way that you live. Wow. You can take that and decide if you feel like that's, you know, true. I don't think that's like, but that's, that's what I read there. And I, and I think that if we combine these verses, saying that the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come, and then we look at, at the fact that apparently the, the day of the Lord could come quicker, you know, if we preach the gospel quicker, then the day of the Lord will come quicker, right? <laughs> Revelation 7 verse 9 talks about this great throng of worshipers from every tribe and nation and tongue. So how did they get there? <laughs> like, presumably they needed to, to hear the gospel first, right? And respond to Jesus. So if there's going to be people from every part of the world in heaven, then every part of the world needs to hear the gospel. Yeah. And until that happens, they can't be up there worshiping. So. And then uh, Romans 10 verses 14 and 15 talks about how, how will anyone hear if nobody preaches to them, you know? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent, right? It's pretty, a pretty logical sequence of, of thoughts. So, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to have those in our minds and then just stop and pray as we think about, you know, we want Jesus to come back, but we want Jesus to come back to something that he's worthy of. Yeah. Like sometimes I, I think about, you know, if Jesus came back tomorrow, I, I, would be, I would be upset. I would be stoked to see Jesus, but I would be kind of embarrassed that, you know, at the state of the world, not that we need to earn his, earn his coming back, but I, I, want to be able to, I want to be able to show him a, a, a world that has heard his name when he comes back, Amen. rather than have him come back and, and, and say, what about those guys? You know? So let's pray. And I just want to, yeah, it's a simple question and it's a, it's a personal application and it's whatever God says to you, he says to you. And so uh, we'll kind of just pray and then leave it at that. Um, well, I'll pray for us all and then we can just spend some time waiting on God and, and listening to what he says. Father, um, I believe that you care about all nations. Um, and this is not an idea that I came about because I care about all nations, um, because I, I really only think of myself most of the time. Um, but 
Lord, you have, you have stated so clearly that you are concerned with every nation and every individual on the earth and that you want them to know you. Lord God, you don't just want them to, to have correct theology or anything like that or, you know, or be informed of the facts. Lord God, you want to know them and you want them to know you and you want them to have a chance to respond to you. You want everybody to have a chance to respond to what we responded to at the beginning of this service. You want everyone to take of your body that was broken and, and drink of your blood that was spilled. Um, and that is a responsibility you have passed on to all of us, um, your church, your hands and feet, your body on this earth. And so, Father, I want to ask collectively, how, how do we serve you in that? How do we give you the desire of your heart? How can we be involved in making that happen, God? And I pray that you would speak um, to all of us, Lord God, if there uh, for those, those here who have heard clearly what you're calling them to, Lord God, how does that line up with, uh, with your purposes in the nations? And, and what, is there more to do or more to respond to? Um, and for those who have no idea, Lord God, I pray for pointers. And again, Lord God, I just ask, is there, are there people here who are meant to go, who are meant to be out there on the mission field? Are there people here who you want to commit to praying? And how? Um, and and yeah, the people here who you want to commit to sending other missionaries. God, I just pray that you would show us all what our role is in making this thing happen. Yeah, Father, I just want to thank you that you, uh, you are the one with the plan and you're the one who's going to make it happen, Lord God, that, that, that knowing that this job is out there to be done is not a weight that we need to carry until we make it happen. Uh, it's something that you are going to make happen because you are the one who's, who's responsible. Um, and so we don't need to carry any other weight other than obedience to what you've spoken to us, God. So I just pray that everyone uh, who you've spoken to today would just be able to, yeah, walk forward knowing that the obedience to you is what's going to make this happen and I pray, yeah, that no one would carry any weight greater than simple obedience. And I thank you for speaking. Amen.